everybody. Welcome back to the So We Speak podcast. From the wind and bug noises and chirping birds, you can tell we're still in Colorado here and doing a little outdoor podcast at 8,000 feet. And if you listen to the last podcast, one of the things we're doing in these two episodes is we're trying to pick issues that have been on our minds, that we see on the horizon, that have really captivated our interest, whether it's in ministry uh, or whether it's just in our own reading and our own thinking. What mm-hmm. what has kind of been placed on your mind and what's resting in your heart? And in the last one, we talked about holiness, the issue of holiness, how it integrates with our pursuit of Christ, but how it grates against certain facets of our culture mm-hmm. um, and how to go about that. In this episode, I want to go in a little bit different direction, and I want to talk about something that's a little bit more out there, but it, it involves every single one of us. And that would be the second issue when I ask you what, what things were on your mind. The second issue is personhood. What does it mean to be a person, or how do we define the self? I think this is one of the key questions that is at the root of almost all the discussions we're having as a culture. Uh, if you go deep enough, you get back to this question of, what does it mean to be a human being? Well, the way I got at this, Cole, was, uh, like everyone else, trying to make sense of really rapid changes around us, whether it has to do with uh, race, sexuality, transgenderism, whether it has to do with uh, vaccine protocols, uh, you know, the authoritarianism that's kind of come out of COVID that we've seen come out of certain elements of our government and around the world. I mean, all of these things were rapid changes and they hit us pretty hard and we're like, where did this come from? And it seemed like it came out of the blue. And so in trying to put that into perspective, here's here's how I would define that. I'm going to lean back on a math example. One of the ways you do proofs in mathematics, you can prove certain things to be true or you can demonstrate that they are not true. And mathematics is largely, frankly, involved with proving whether or not things are true. And so as you go into a a proof, one of the techniques is this. You assume something. Like, let's assume that 2 plus 2 equals 5. That's a belief that I have. And let's then start to reason from things I know and see where does it take me. Well, this form of proof is called reductio ad absurdum, reducing a statement to absurdity. Mm -hmm. In other words, I'd say 2 plus 2 equals 5. I'm just going to believe that's true. And then I begin to reason, and then I get to a contradiction of something that I do know. And I realize, well, wait a minute. I now have a contradiction. I've reached an absurdity. What is that telling me? It's telling me that that initial belief is wrong. Right. Now, this is a little technical probably for some, some people have turned this on and they're like, I thought this was like a Bible podcast. <laughs> Instead, here I am back in junior math, which I hated. Um, but I think this is really important to lay out as a concept. This is a way of thinking that is really important. And whether you think about thinking this way or not, people around you are doing what it is that we're describing. And that's really the key is understanding what's going on. And so last semester I was teaching logic to college students at Dallas Baptist. And one of the things I love about that course is you can take ideas and really distill them down and pull the curtain back and say, this is what's going on behind this idea. Right. For all the emotive impact, for all of what sounds good, let's go down and see what is actually being done under the hood. And a reductio proof, a reductio ad absurdum proof is really simple. You assume a statement and then you show a contradiction. So, you know, we can assume statement S and then somewhere along the way, because we've assumed that's true, we can show 
X and not X are both true at the same time. Yeah. So the situation we find ourselves in in a reductio proof is kind of like a, a house of mirrors. I mean, it, things are just not quite exactly. right. Exactly. And that the reason I say that is because where we find ourselves today is at the absurdity point. Yes. We're at the end of that proof. For example, turn on the television the other day and I see a commercial that says men can have babies too. Now, I'm not picking on this topic, but when I heard that, I thought, that's absurd. Yeah. It strikes me as, and I mean this in all, all sincerity, that is a contradiction between what the word man means and what having a baby means. And so where am I? I thought to myself, oh my goodness, I'm at the tail end right. of an assumption that just now turned out to be absurd. Yes, and, and I think this is really the key. This is why it's important to frame it this way, is because a lot of times... The statement that you assume in order to start the proof yeah. seems like it could be true. Yeah. You don't really realize that that statement is false until you produce the contradiction. Then you realize, oh, this statement must be false. Exactly. And that's what we're doing culturally is we have bought a lot of beliefs, a lot of statements. I'm talking culture-wide here that are not true, but they seem like they could be true. Right. But what we're seeing now is they lead to a bunch of contradictions. And it's our job to work backwards and say, what statements have we assumed exactly. that have led us to this point? And that's the point of starting with that little proof is when you get to the contradiction, that's you don't sit there at the contradiction. You realize, oh, the belief I started with, 2 plus 2 equals 5, that must not be True. Maybe let me put this in a little bit more practical terms. If you're building a bridge, for example, and you make a wrong calculation at the very beginning, or let's say you know Jeff Bezos is blasting off into space, and some engineer somewhere makes a just a slight you know to a one hundredth of a unit error on the launch angle, instead you can miss the moon by yeah. thousands of miles. Right. So it, one mistake at the beginning can lead you to really. Um, disparate places in the end. That's kind of the way this argument works. Well, and when you get to the end, the men can have babies too. This is what I'm going to call my contradiction moment. What you do is you say, that's telling me that the belief I started with, there's something wrong with that. Yes. And that led me back. Now, our culture, to be fair, is not acting like a good mathematician. Our culture has said, wow, I got here and that's a contradiction. I'm going to double down. Right. I'm going off the cliff on this Let's thing. Let's triple down. But what I do and what other Christians do, instead of just being puzzled by how could someone say something so contradictory, I thought to myself, well, it must be something they believed back at the beginning. And I mm -hmm. think what is the source of this is the whole definition of personhood. So, for example, men can have babies too. You're going to have to redefine something. And so what we decided we'd redefine way back upstream a few years ago is what does it mean to be a man? Mm -hmm. What does it mean to be gendered? Well, we decided, you know, it's actually not biological. It can be whatever you want it to be. Psychological. That assumption led to this absurd contradiction at mm -hmm. the end. And that's what got me thinking about personhood, selfhood. And that seems to me to be where uh, the, the initial flawed idea that's driving a lot of what's happening now. And there are a lot of people talking about that. I remember a few years ago, you recommended a book to me by Bruce Thornton. He's a classicist called Plagues of the Mind. 
it's unbelievably good uh, book. But one of the sections was about the psychotherapeutic worldview, the psychotherapeutic man, how we began to uh, understand our world and our experiences, not through spiritual or primarily scientific means, but through psychological means. And I think one of the best examples that you realize where we've gotten to with that is when you said something to me the other day about uh, an emotionally fulfilled life. What were you talking yeah. about? Well, so in Carl Truman's new book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, he starts with this basic assumption. He says, imagine if you went to our grandparents and you said the statement, uh, someone is a man trapped in a woman's body. That would not even make sense to them because they don't have any of the premises to get you to where we know what that phrase means. Mm -hmm. If indeed we do want to know what it means. I think right. some of us need to preserve the fact that that is an absurd statement. We know what people mean by it, but it is an absurd statement. And his point is, but, but how did we get here? And that book is really helpful. It's dense and it's philosophical, but in going through how do you get to this point. And I think the most important thing that he says in the book is actually something that Alistair McIntyre said in After Virtue, which is we live in a society now where instead of morality being based on right and wrong or on principles that we can debate or on cost-benefit analysis or whatever, mm -hmm. we determine morality by our emotional preferences. So morality in our society is defined by the exertion of moral preferences. I think that is exactly right. I think that's one of the most profound insights into what we are doing as a society is we don't really believe in right and wrong. We believe in emotional and psychological ease or emotional and psychological uh, good feelings and that must be what is right and wrong. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think the psychotherapeutic, and I'm not anti-psychology by any means. I think this is an application, and it basically says that in order to be a well-ordered person, a well-functioning person, uh, then my emotions must all be very calm. Mm -hmm. And that is an aberration, I think, of what psychology is all about but this whole psychotherapeutic idea is that any emotional difficulty i have can be resolved in the realm of my brain in the realm of psychology i just need to adapt my thinking to accommodate these feelings what that really comes down to though is if i feel and i have a lot of compassion for this please don't read harshness into this if i have gender dysphoria if i have unhappiness in my situation if i have the signs of depression uh, circumstantial depression, for example, that means I need to change the state of my mind. And that's really backwards. You know, that's basically adapting everything to a dysfunctional situation. And that then says, I need the world to conform to my definition of self, as opposed to, I need a healthier definition of self. Mm -hmm. I need my emotions to be conformed to reality or good health or proper boundaries instead of having the world conform to my emotions. And I mm -hmm. think that's part of what you were saying is my emotions determine what's right or wrong. Well, I don't think it takes more than, you know, five minutes of watching the news or being on Twitter or being, you know, involved in anything on a large public um, view. We don't really encounter this as much one-on-one. -on -one. I mean, if you just go out to 7-Eleven, you probably don't encounter this, or if you just go about your regular life. But on a broad scale, 
we live in a society that that has to have the worst state of mental health in modern history. Mm-hmm. And the point is not whether or not that's true or untrue. I think almost everybody agrees that that's true. The point is, what is it that we're going to do about it? And like you've said, there's kind of two, there's two ways of looking at this. So we have widespread mental health problems. Now, first of all, we might want to go back and define mental health, um, which is kind of beyond what we're talking about here. But let's, let's say these are real psychological issues that can be solved. Um, we, we can either change the status of the person's mental health. And again, I'm all in favor of the ways that people have developed and researched and written about and tested and scientifically proven for doing this. But the other way, and I think this is the preferred way of doing it is mm-hmm. let's just change the circumstances exactly. so that that state of unhealth is a little bit more comfortable because the problem is discomfort. And when, when that becomes your mechanism, you start to do some very strange things. Well, one of the things I do is if something you just said made me feel uncomfortable or triggered me, then you just did something that was morally wrong. Right. So this is worth really dissecting. Disagreeing with someone and, um, you know, taking a different opinion on something causes, and I think this is because we have a hyperactive, you know, it's kind of like when you have a, a stubbed toe or something, everything is really amplified. I think that's where we are right now with this, but but if you look at it, disagreeing with someone or saying that somebody's wrong or having a different opinion about politics or social issues or gender or sexuality, that should just be a difference of opinion. And you may not like what I think about it. I may not like what you think about it. But if we leave it there, that's kind of the normal operating procedure. What we're doing now, though, is saying, actually, it's not just that. It's not just a difference of opinion. It's an act of violence, you have committed an act of violence against me. And it sounds like we're making light of these situations because the the rhetoric has gotten so extreme that, that you have violated something, you have committed an act of violence, you have been harmful in some way. This is really high levels of rhetoric to describe what in a lot of cases is basically a difference of opinion. Right. But that's how you go about changing the circumstances to suit the emotional and mental comfort. Which, if I can generalize just a little bit, because I want to take off in a little different direction that's troubling to me, is it is not just an individual what we've said is true is I, my view of who I am, my identity, and I'm going to use the word personhood, is very much wrapped around how safe, how comfortable I feel, and that has uh, big implications for everybody else. But this redefinition of personhood, as opposed to I am an entity living in a community and my feelings need to conform uh, so that we can get along. In other words, I can't act on every feeling I have, and not every feeling I have is is dangerous. Uh, if I'm feeling a little oppressed, it may be because I'm oppressed. It may be because I just need to get over it and say this is unfortunately what it's well, the way the world works, right? I mean, there are more than one way to look at this, but redefining personhood in such a central way has unfortunately caused a lot of pain to everybody around us. Now I need you to change your behavior, and I'm not respecting your personhood. And the really nasty part of this is at the the extreme ends of the bell curve, the unborn 
and the aged. And if you're watching what's happening in our culture, this redefinition of personhood is diminishing what personhood means. In fact, today it's not enough in liberal circles to say that the unborn are not really humans, and so abortion is okay. It actually goes after birth. Mm -hmm. And that personhood doesn't begin until some time after birth. And personhood is screened, is basically coming backwards from the high end, is that at the very aged, you have to start asking basic questions about quality of life. And if your quality of life's not good, is that really true personhood? In which case, should we keep that person alive? Yeah. I, I, I may be reaching a little bit here, but it seems to me this redefining personhood has tentacles that go a long way in our culture. Yeah, I think you're right. And it's not just what is a person. It's what constitutes your life as a person. That's mm-hmm. part of the the difficulty here is this is where I think Truman is really insightful is what is the self? How do you define the self? And I think what he's arguing that leads to a lot of these conclusions is the self is some kind of emotional, psychological homeostasis. So can I get to a point that is reasonably comfortable psychologically? And if I can't, then things need to change, and I am oppressed until I can be at that point. And I would make two observations. Number one, things don't seem to be getting better under this model. We don't seem to have figured out the key, and all of a sudden everybody's psychological health is a lot better Um, You know, everybody is emotionally a lot healthier. I think one of the things that COVID has exposed, I think COVID itself has exposed a lot of things, but medically and Mm -hmm. the the disease itself, obviously. But one of the longer-term effects will be that it has exposed the major problems we have in the self. Suicides are up. Crime is up. Depression is up. Anxiety is up. All of those things are going to be with us a lot longer than the medical aspects of COVID. And I think the thing I'm really sensitive to on that topic is what should that be telling us about how we've defined personhood, not just in actual people, but in how we measure our own personhood through the lens of what does it mean to be a self? What does it mean for me to have a successful life? Mm -hmm. What What is my aim in being a person? And I think as long as you define that as the exertion of my emotional preferences, uh, things are just going to get worse and worse and worse. And I'll give an example of this. This sounds really extreme, but since we're talking about what we see on the horizon, I've just seen more and more that if you are going to take a traditional position, I'm not even talking about a traditional Christian position at this point, just a traditional position in in the history of mankind on something like gender or something like speech as violence, or something like limited government, for example, you are going to have to get used to the fact that the rhetoric can only go up so far. Mm-hmm. And it's been escalating really fast. So, for example, on race, it's easy to see because we started out talking about racism, and now we're talking about white supremacy. The conversation really hadn't changed that much in terms of what's being done. What's changed is what it's being labeled as. Mm-hmm. White supremacy used to be labeled, I'm, I'm talking like in 2016, as kind of a neo-Nazi, yeah. skinhead kind of movement. Now, anybody 
I mean, even Kevin DeYoung, who's responding to other Presbyterians about a racial question, is being called a white supremacist. So the language creeps. It, it, it moves over time. And it, this is true with everybody. This is not just a progressive issue, although they're probably better at this mm-hmm. than conservatives are um, and traditional people are. But the language can only creep so far. And you hear this all the time now. This is going to become the norm. Mark my words, two years from now, five years from now, that if you say something like biology determines your sex and your gender, then the response to that will be the blood of every person who's committed suicide who is struggling with their gender dysphoria is on your hands. Right. You are a murderer at that point. Mm-hmm. That's just the way that the scaffolding works. Right. Of course that's not true. But that's the, that's the world we're going to live in because the way that you reinforce this vision of selfhood is by extreme rhetoric. So we already see this. If you're talking about conversion therapy ban, for example, which nobody in the world knows what conversion therapy really means. Mm-hmm. It's marketed as meaning you can't give people shock treatment, you know, because of their yeah. sexual identity. What it really means is in a lot of these bills, there's one that was on the floor of the Oklahoma House of Representatives, for example. If you tell someone, maybe you should reconsider in this gender reassignment since you're 13 years old, or you know what, maybe things will change in the future, or you know, maybe it's not right to enter into a homosexual relationship. If you say that, that's considered conversion therapy, and it should be banned. And the reason that they argue for this is really interesting, is because if you do that, that person is more likely to commit suicide. Now, is that statistically true? No, it's not statistically true. Uh, is it statistically true that you know gender reassignment surgeries alleviate mental health problems? No, actually, the statistics show the reverse problem. But the way the rhetoric will be used is if you advocate for something like that, then you are causing people to die. Mm -hmm. You are a murderer. I say that as an example, not just to decry that and to just be aware of it, but that is the way that you perpetuate a psychological therapeutic model. So just just, just think about the way that we use the word violence today. Right. We... And it's easy to take pot shots on things like the rioting and stuff, you know, what is violence and what is not. I think the more insidious version is that speech that you don't agree with is violent. I hate to say this. It is not. Speech is not violent. Speech can be wrong. Speech can be untrue. You can do things with speech that, that lead people to do something that is violent. Speech is not violence. And the way that we scaffold this rhetoric is going to change a lot of the way that we think about the self and we think about um, this kind of therapeutic worldview. You know, and, and I'm step back for a second because if you're listening to this, you're thinking, yeah, this is, you know, really uh, up in the clouds a little bit, but it's, it really is what's happening. Why are we talking about this? Let me reframe this. My thought on this started with, I see some things that appear to me to be contradictions and I know that didn't pop out of thin air. And so we go back to some of the ideas behind it. And that's what we've been talking about. And so I think as Christians, fighting the little battles of absurd ideas, uh, you, we do need to speak truth into the world. But that's not where this actually comes from. It's the fundamental idea of personhood. And we have a lot to say about that. It's a fundamental idea of the denial of self leading to true freedom. We have a lot to say about the core ideas. 
but one, when I got to that point, I realized I don't want to spend as much time talking about the absurdities as I do about the ideas that are behind it, because really Jesus has a lot to say about those ideas, because Jesus loves us and wants us to flourish, and he realizes we're not going to flourish going down the road of absurdities. But then it hit me, and this is something you've talked about a lot, is by the time the church got involved with the sexual revolution, it was over. Mm-hmm. By the time the church got involved with the gender revolution, it was over in the culture. And that made you start thinking of what's next. What are the assumptions and ideas today that are going to lead to the contradictions and the absurdities tomorrow? Can we start speaking to these ideas before we see mm-hmm. the absurdities at the end? And uh, talk about that a little bit, because I think that's an important idea for us. Yeah, I think if you look back at the last, I mean, I'm sure this is true on a longer scale, but it's very acute in the last 10 years of the way that the church is interfacing with our culture in America. We are so responsive and reactive to wherever the church is going. And some of that is natural. You have to respond to things that people are saying and thinking. Here we are talking about issues that we're observing Mm -hmm. in a reactive way. But if you think about it, on every big cultural issue of the last 10, 12, 15 years, the church has been completely, totally late to the party. Mm-hmm. I mean, by the time, uh, I think this is the Churchill quote of a, a lie can get halfway around the world before the truth is putting on its shoes. Right. You could just go ahead and change that for anything the culture is doing can be halfway around the world before the church has tied its shoes. And I think this is really obvious in the case of sexuality and in the case of race. So in terms of sexuality, the church was so late to talking about this. And this has been going on for 50 years. And some of this is churches trying to avoid cultural issues. Some of it is, um, you know, it's not really native to the mindset of most pastors and most Christians to think about what is going on in the very far corners of aberrant society mm-hmm. is going to make right. its way into the mainstream in 10 years. So, so I get that. But the problem is when the question of same-sex marriage and the Obergefell decision, for example, when that starts to heat up, most churches start to respond with some kind of series on marriage or sexuality or something like that. And I don't think all those were bad by any means. I think a late effort is better than no effort. But the problem is those are so easily dismissed at that point because most people have already decided in their own mind based on their experience, based on their family, based on their friends, based on the media that they've been consuming for 10 years at that point, what they think about that. And it's very hard to change people's minds when they've already made up their mind on something like that when the cultural pressure is so strong against it. So I attribute this to two things. Number one... The, the answer to being reactive is to be proactive. Mm-hmm. So, and, and I don't just mean we need to be able to predict the future. I mean, if you're teaching the Bible, you're reading the Bible, you're exploring what the Bible says, you're building a biblical worldview, you are not going to be taken by surprise on an issue like sexuality, gender, race. I think there's more interesting things going on in the future, but those are the two that we're pretty wrapped around the axle right now. Mm-hmm. You're not going to be taken... Uh, by surprise on some of those things because you will have studied the New Testament where they had sexual issues in the New Testament that look that, that, that make us look very tame. Right. And yet, Paul and Jesus and Peter and John are all speaking into this in a way of here's what God says about how we were designed. 
and here's what God says about what you should and should not do with your body and with your desires and all those things. So that's one way is we should just be proactive, teaching what the Bible says, building a biblical worldview, and we won't be so surprised when things come along like this. Of course, the second part of this is we need to be a little bit smarter about thinking through the things that are coming and being okay with saying things about them before they get here. Before right. the massive ton of cultural pressure Speak is to bearing down on everybody. Yeah, to use our other example is we are confined now to debating the question, men can have babies too, as opposed to talking about a biblical view of personhood. And I, I think when you come late to the party, you're just debating the tail end of the argument, and we want to get ahead of it. And I think that's what I hear you saying is the more we read, the more we teach, the more we preach the word— God already knows what's mm-hmm. coming. And those principles of biblical identity, uh, selfhood, denial of self, uh, true freedom, yeah. all those ideas are baked into the scriptures. Yes, I, that's the first point to me is if you're building a comprehensive biblical worldview on what the Bible says, those things are not going to be as surprising. And they're not going to be as alluring either. But the other thing is I think we need to start speaking specifically to the things that are going to be happening in the future that uh, are not here yet in full force. But we should probably just go ahead and get out in front of and just go ahead and say, hey, you know what the Bible says about this. This isn't a pressing issue right now. It's on the horizon. Here's kind of what we believe about it. And there's a lot of opportunities to do that. And and that leads me to something that's been on my mind a lot, which is why, and I'm not just talking about the church here, but why as a culture have we waned in thinking about what is next. Mm -hmm. We don't really have a good cultural imagination as to where we're going. So I I first really thought that Ross Douthat nailed this point in the book Decadent Society. Mm -hmm. In the opening of the book, he says, if you were to go to the movies right now, what would you see? Well, there's a new rebooted Star Wars that's coming out that's been big for 30 or 40 years. You have all these Marvel comic movies, which were first written right after World War II. You have the threat of nuclear war, which has you know, basically been around since the 60s. Uh-huh. It's all rehashed stuff. Why are we not creating anything new? We're promised, you know, if you're his age, we're promised as kids that by this point we'd have flying cars and all this kind of stuff, and instead we have iPhones. And it's like, what has the iPhone actually done? Well, it's made our lives more convenient. It's connected us. You know, it's done a lot of good things. But it's not the kind of cultural transforming technology that we thought we would experience. Mm -hmm. And the more I thought about that, the more I thought the problem is not just a failure of manufacturing, for example. Right. Because there is a lot going on in technology that most people do not spend any time thinking about that is really amazing what we can do. Mm -hmm. The point is, we don't have an imagination for what could be next. Right. We're not creative. We think basically in iterations of what we have now, as opposed to something totally new on the horizon. And so that got me thinking, why is it that we don't have that sense? An example I've always loved is when, so when Winston Churchill is the, is the prime minister in World War II, he, and especially in the 30s before he's the prime minister, he's really attuned to what's going on in the scientific community because he reads science fiction and he'll read people like Orson Welles and think about the ideas that are in there, but also because he has this professor, Lindemann, who mm-hmm. keeps him updated on, I mean, he's a Cambridge-trained scientist who 
keeps him up to date on what's happening in the scientific community. And so he's able to see ahead. And so he's able to do things like advocate for the tank before it's even a prototype. He's an early adopter of flight. He understands the power of the air battle in World War II right. in a way that gives Britain a huge advantage in outlasting Germany in mm-hmm. the bombing raids. And I thought, why don't we have leaders and thinkers who are able to anticipate like that? You know, the, the, the temptation is always to fight the last war over right. again. From a cultural standpoint, I'm wondering, and I'm thinking a lot about, and I think this is really acute with the church, why are we continuing to fight the last war over and over and right. over again? I think this sounds probably a little bit like I'm down on the church. I th- the church is like fighting the civil war over and over again. We're not even one war behind. We're three or four wars behind. Why is that, and how do we fix it? Yeah, that's a that's a really good point. Is um, I, I think it's because we're reactive, and there's an element of of a we've gotten comfortable, particularly in America. When the civil religion for so long, that's changing, but the civil religion was at least morally identical with the Christian religion, and it made us very comfortable, and we just quit looking ahead. We just lost our fire in our belly. Uh, that, that's just an opinion. You may mm-hmm. disagree with me, when you, uh, those of you listening to me, but I really feel like we got a little complacent. And so, for example, here's my question. Who's thinking about gene splicing right now? Yes. Who's thinking about AI right now in the church and saying, look, we're like a kid with a loaded revolver. And that's what science is like today. And it's it's magnificent, but it's very unguided. We're as likely to shoot ourselves in the foot mm-hmm. as we are to do something good with this. Yeah. And I feel like the church comes at this with the only really authentic sense of right and wrong. And that's what God says is right and wrong. And I'm not talking about, okay, gene splicing is bad, don't do it. I'm talking about how do we guide this for human flourishing? What does God have to say Mm -hmm. about that? I I feel like we've been complacent, but maybe that's not a sufficient explanation. That's an accusation against myself as well. Well, complacency, I think, is is a good part of it. I think the inability to apply biblical principles to new situations is another part. This is where we just need some creativity. Mm-hmm. So, for example, if you would have said a hundred years ago, marriage is between a man and a woman, that means it can't be between a man and a man. That wouldn't have been a very controversial thing to say a right. hundred years ago. Um, all of a sudden, I say that now, I'm sure there's people that are listening to the podcast that disagree with that or that say, I can't believe you would say that. Okay, so what's, what's, what's happened between those two times? The biblical principle hasn't changed at all. The context has changed. The way that we apply a biblical principle has radically changed because our relationships have changed, the environment we're in has changed, all of this. So what are the principles that are true now that are relatively uncontroversial but that are going to get really hard to assert 20 years from now? So to take that same example, marriage is between a man and a woman. That means it can't be between a man and a robot. Mm -hmm. That doesn't seem very controversial right now. No, You cannot marry a robot. But I guarantee you in 10 years that will be a controversial thing to say. Mm-hmm. And the thing about it, too, is the way these arguments are waged is not just through factual analysis. The way the arguments are waged are, are waged is through emotions. It, it's not that you abstractly think that that's true. It's that you have a certain situation where, but can't you kind of see here that in this situation it's an exception? Mm-hmm. That's how those arguments are done. So what we need is the principle to be in place beforehand to say, yeah, and there really aren't exceptions to that. Right. So whichever thing we encounter 
in the future is an opportunity for love and grace, and that will be a very difficult pastoral situation to walk somebody through, mm-hmm. but it won't change the fact that the principle is just as true now as it will be in 20 years. And so I want to start thinking of whether it's robots, whether it's automation, whether it's AI, whether it's gene editing, whether it's uh, the way that our information is shared, whether it's the way that we interface with people in terms of our virtual selves. Um, and what you can and can't do as a virtual picture of yourself versus your own body. These are questions that have principles in Scripture that directly address them, but we've got to start thinking about them before they're actually here. Mm -hmm. And um, I I think in terms of like virtual reality, for example, what can a virtual self do and not do versus you yourself doing and not doing? Okay, this is basically first-century Gnosticism all over again with just completely and totally rehashed ethical dilemmas. So you have people in the New Testament, for example, who are thinking, my spirit is pure, my body is bad, so, you know, spirit is good, matter is bad, it doesn't matter what I do with my body, it matters what I do with my soul. So you have people who who, who Paul is writing about, you can't be united with a temple prostitute, because you, your body, you are your body and you've been bought with a price. Mm-hmm. So you can't unite yourself to Christ and then unite Christ with a prostitute. That's, you can't do that. That's wrong. Well, I think that same principle applies to can my virtual self go do something that is clearly sinful when I myself don't do it? Right. That's a tough question, but it's the same principle, just worked out in different ways. And there's going to be a lot of nuance that's needed there. That's not an easy question. Well, you already see that a little bit, in because I'm going to say that your social media presence is, to some extent, an avatar, uh, a virtual self. In other words, I wouldn't come up to you and say, Cole, you're a terrible person. I think you got to kill yourself. Uh, I probably wouldn't say that to you face-to-face, uh, but on social media, mm-hmm. people get say those things and they say things like that and they want to think that they are immune to the consequences of that it's what it's the early stages of what you're saying and the question is will our culture hold people accountable for what their virtual presence Mm -hmm. has done and if you think about that now Think about that on steroids yeah. in 10 years or 15 years. Yeah. I think you're right. There are certain basic principles of right and wrong there that are already being tested a little bit. Well, and I'll give you another example that's a little bit more, that's a little bit closer to where we are right now. I, I think the church has done a, uh, a bad job at the beginning and getting better at talking about things like infertility. Mm-hmm. So infertility completely changed in the last five to 10 years because of technology. So... Um, you know, we just don't talk about people that don't have kids the same way that you could have 50 years ago. Now, I think a lot of churches have noticed that, and you see a lot more people talking, pastors preaching, churches teaching, um, resources, books being written about walking through infertility, things like in vitro, things like adoption. All these options are now being, being analyzed through a theological lens. I think that is a great thing. And I think that's one area where the, the church is probably up to speed in a lot of ways. Yes. But the next question is, okay, but what what about gene editing and CRISPR and all those things? Mm -hmm. We're in the throes of a situation where let's, and this is, we don't have time to talk through all the details here, but let's say that you do have a technology that we would all universally say, I'm not alluding to one here, but let's say you have a technology where we're all saying, you know what, that is just too much like abortion. We can't do that. Okay, whatever that technology would be, if you say that to someone, you're not just saying that. 
you're saying it might be that you guys can never have kids biologically. Mm-hmm. That is a lot to say to somebody. Mm-hmm. And that's a really tough thing to walk through. Mm-hmm. But unless you're willing to think about that, and unless, and this could be one-to-one pastoral, it doesn't just have to be from the pulpit, doesn't have to be just in articles or something, but unless you're willing to entertain that question, which is basically what we talked about earlier, the right and wrong defined by principles as opposed to emotional preference in the right. moment, and this is really hotly charged, then we can never have a, we can never have a conversation about something like designer babies and, and gene editing and all that in the future because that's going to be even more tantalizing emotionally. You mean you're telling me that I can be 100% sure or with a great deal of certainty that my child will never inherit any kind of disease. They'll never have any of the markers that we have. You know, there's nothing like that that could happen. They'll be able to live a lot longer. They'll be healthier. They'll be bigger, stronger, smarter. And you're telling me that for some reason, some antiquated reason, Christians don't believe that's the right thing to do. You don't want to have that conversation in the moment. Right. You want to have built out and studied and prayed about and thought about what it means for two people to have a child in a biblical frame before you're on the cusp of, can I or can I not have this kind of baby? Right. Th- these are really hard questions. Well, these are get to the heart of what I want to term as relevance. The church is rightly concerned about being relevant to the times in which we live, because I think the gospel is universally relevant. But relevance to me is not the tactics or techniques that we are using to appeal I understand the nature of that. I'm not necessarily dismissing it. I would say true relevance is thinking through these kinds of questions before the culture gets there so that we can truly love our fellow man by helping guide them to what is really good for human beings. Because we are doing some things that are, uh, you're seeing it in a lot of ways in the world today, not least in transgender, uh, gender uh, surgeries and things like that on prepubescent kids. I mean, that's just one little example. We're doing a lot of things that are causing a lot of harm to our fellow man. I think relevance for the church is speak the truth in time to warn the culture about what's really good and whole and true. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that a good definition, a good working definition of something, uh, of discipleship in this aspect of your life, your worldview discipleship is, are you equipped to think about the things that you experience now and that you're going to experience in the future through a biblical lens. Are you able, are you equipped to think about something that's that's not actually here yet, but that might be on the horizon technologically or anthropologically through a Christian lens? And I think churches, pastors, Christian leaders, everybody individually should be taking that up and saying, I want to be prepared when the next thing gets here. So I want to know what I believe. I want to know why I believe it. I want to be able to see the world through a biblical lens so that I'm not taken by surprise, so that I'm not, uh, you know, I don't become a victim to the next cultural movement that that happens and we have no response to. I think that would be a great goal for thinking about these things on the horizon through a Christian worldview. And step one for that, as it has been for 2,000 years, is read our Bible. Let Let the Word literally saturate us and the Holy Spirit will lead us in the right way. Yeah, and, and I think pastors and leaders need to be wise and bold. And if you don't have one of those, you're in the wrong. But there are things that we need to start speaking out against in a loving way, in a wise way, that at the end of the day are worth saying to our people. 
It's the most loving thing that you can do with compassion to say, this is what God says, and this is what we should do. Amen. Thanks for listening to the So We Speak podcast. If you like what you hear, go ahead and leave a comment, leave a review, email us, tell us what you like about it, tell us what you'd improve about it. Thanks to all you guys who are listening, and we'll see you next week on the So We Speak podcast.